This is In The Word with Malcolm Weber. So in the same way, you can endure your persecution courageously now, knowing that you will be vindicated just as the Lord Jesus Christ was when He was raised from the dead and seated at the Father's right hand. I believe that that's the sense of even though there's persecution here, yet there will be vindication. Praise God. Welcome to In the Word with Malcolm Weber. 1 Peter 3 focuses in further on the importance of walking in a way that is worthy of the great salvation we receive in Christ, dealing specifically with relationships and our response to persecution. Find out more in the second part of Dr. Weber's message on 1 Peter 3, 1 through 20. Verse 11, he must turn from evil and do good. He's continuing the quotation from the psalm. If you desire the blessing of loving life and seeing good days, then you must also turn from evil. You must avoid evil, turn away from evil. You must do good, not only avoid evil, but also do good, both the negative and the positive aspects. You must seek peace and pursue it. Peace is not always easily found, is it? Is peace always easily found? Peace in relationships, peace with other people? Not always. Conflict is easily found, is it not? But peace, see, peace must be pursued. We must pursue peace. We must seek peace. Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. This is why the one that will love life and see good days will be blessed when he lives the right way. It's because God is watching us. And when we live in a way that pleases him, then his eyes are on us. That means for good, you know, his eyes are directed, you know, in a positive sense toward us. He's going to do us good. His eyes are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayer. He's listening. He's listening to hear your prayer. Now, of course, if you never pray because you're too busy, well, then, you know, tough luck, right? But, but his ears are, are attentive to our prayers. So as we ask God to help us and we ask God for his grace, then he's attentive to that. He's not ignoring us, but he's listening and he's responding. On the other hand, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And the implication is that his face will be against you, his chastisement for believers, his wrath against the lost will be against you if you do evil. And so if you want to have good life, long days, and have a blessed life, then live the right way, live in righteousness, live in blessing. Now Peter moves into, in the next section, the Christian's response to persecution, and he begins to deal specifically with persecution. Verse 13, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? And certainly this is normally the case, isn't it? That people are not going to harm you if you do good. Uh, It's not always the case because he has already said in the prior chapter that there are times when you may suffer unjustly, right? But usually... If you will do good, if you will live righteous, you'll do well. Normally, the people who suffer the most are those who do wrong. That's what he's saying here. Who's going to harm you? Even fallen men, remember we're talking about the Christian in the context of his life in the world, even people that are lost still will respond positively to you when you do good, right? They've still got a sense of morality. They've still got a basic sense of right and wrong, and they would rather live in a society that does right than wrong, and so they will reward the doing of righteousness. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Literally, it's zealots. If you are a zealot for good works, 
And this is what constitutes doing good, not just a little bit of token good once in a while, not trying to get away with as much bad as we can and just enough good to hopefully tilt the scales. But this is zealousness here for doing good works before man as well as before God. Not to be seen by them, but nevertheless to do them. Verse 14, But even if you should suffer for what is right, then you are blessed. So normally you won't suffer for doing right. This is his context here. But if you do, then you are blessed. And Jesus, of course, said that in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So when you do right and you suffer for that, then you are blessed. And so do not fear what they fear. Don't be affected by their threats. You know, they're trying to make you afraid. They're giving you insults and curses and slander and so forth. Don't fear them. Instead, fear God. Don't be afraid of those who can only kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in eternal hell. Verse 15, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Instead of fear being in your heart, instead of being afraid of them and maybe compromising as a result of that fear, let Christ reign as Lord in your heart. Let his presence and his peace rule your heart. Praise God. And always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared whether the times are good, whether the times are bad, even if you're being persecuted for your faith, even if you're being persecuted right now. He says, take that as an opportunity to witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he also says to be prepared to give an answer. All right. <laughs> know what you're going to say. Be prepared to. Jesus said that when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say in Matthew 10, and so some have taken that as a command to never prepare anything in advance, but that's really not what he was saying. What he meant by that is don't worry about it. You know, He wasn't saying you can't prepare. You should prepare. Peter says be prepared that in any circumstance you're going to be able to give an answer for the hope that is in you, that you may be able to give an answer to everyone who asks you in whatever context it may be, and he says that you will have people ask you. Praise God. Why will you have people ask you? It's because you're not being afraid. You see, they're threatening you and so forth, but you're not being afraid. You've got peace in your heart. You have set apart the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord in your heart. I mean, you're walking in spiritual victory here. And so they're seeing this and they're saying, hey, what's with you? You see? You should be trembling in fear. We're about to throw you to the lions or something or other. Or we're being mean and terrible and horrible to you, but you're not retaliating. You're being gentle and you have peace and God's presence upon you. And so they're asking you here for a reason, for the hope. They're saying, what's the reason for this hope that is in you? Because of the way that you're responding to our slander or you should have fear at the circumstances that you're in, but you don't. What's the reason for this? But do this, he says, with gentleness and respect. This is how we witness, guys, in gentleness and respect. We don't witness with some sort of loud, harsh, in-your-face manner. Can you see this? I mean, can you see that we're learning here how to witness here in 1 Peter? Right? It's not in your face. It's with gentleness and respect. It's not unkind. It's not some sort of loud thing. But respect. Respect, not putting people down and giving them some sort of a spiritual slander, but respect for them. Obviously, fear of God and respect toward man. 
not defying them, not in your face, but witness with gentleness and respect and keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Keeping a clear conscience, not doing bad. You're walking in righteousness. You're walking in the fear of God and obedience to God and you know you are. You've got a clear conscience and so that gives you conviction upon your life, isn't there? Because you've got a clear conscience. You're right with God. You're walking right with God. And so you're able to stand before them with a clear conscience. And there is the anointing and the power of the Spirit. So there's conviction upon your life that they will sense. Right? They'll sense that conviction that you're right, they're wrong. And so he says here, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ, they may be ashamed of their slander. They'll be ashamed because they'll say, what are we doing here? He's righteous. And they'll be ashamed of themselves. Whereas if you respond with, well, do you know, I'm a blood-bought child of God and he's going to send you to hell and you just act like some sort of religious maniac, then they're going to feel justified, aren't they? Right? Well, boy, good thing we're getting rid of this nut, you know. <laughs> but, 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 if you, but, but if you're responding in gentleness with respect to them, you know, perhaps as authority figures or at least just as men and women who are in the image of God, you're responding with respect and with dignity and grace and you've got a clear conscience. You know that you've walked in righteousness so there's nothing you're ashamed of. So there's power in you. There's power in your testimony. That's how you witness. You don't witness just by the force of your personality getting in someone's face and saying, you need to get saved. And then they tell you to get lost and then you walk away thinking, oh, wow, persecution for righteousness sake. You ever met anybody? that you ever done that perhaps? Perhaps you've done that yourself. You know? Oh my, that's not what he's saying. You see, we're in a context of how to witness to somebody here. And he says, do it with gentleness and meekness and respect. Verse 17, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It's better. If you're going to suffer, it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Notice he says, if it is God's will. So it is hypothetical. He's not assuming that it's always going to be God's will for you to suffer. Okay? The Christian life is not just one endless, never-ceasing suffering. Okay? But if it is God's will for you to suffer, it may or may not be. Eventually, we all will suffer to some extent, certainly, but the Christian life also is there's joy and you know, good days and so forth. He's mentioned that as well. For Christ died for sins once for all. Notice how he, he used the word for. So this is related to what he just said. And he's about to show us the proof of suffering for good, that Jesus did good and he suffered for it. And God exalted him, and God will exalt you. You see, he's saying that this is what you ought to do. You should do good, and if you suffer for doing good, then that's okay. Look at the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did nothing but good and suffered horribly, but it worked out well for him in the end, praise God. So therefore it will for you too. He's encouraging us to endure even when things don't go well. So Jesus suffered for doing good, but in the process he gained life and he also gained glory. And so Peter is proving that a Christian who suffers for doing good will be blessed in the end. Christ died for sins once for all. Uses again the language of Paul. Paul says this a number of times in the book of Hebrews. He emphasizes that there was one sacrifice for all sins for all time. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. 
is he's emphasizing Jesus was not suffering for his own sins. You see, he was the righteous for the unrighteous. He was right. We were the unrighteous ones. He was dying in our place. And can you see how he's teaching the doctrine of substitutionary sacrifice here, but his context, the overall meaning here, is the sufferings of the righteous, you see? But in that context, he actually establishes the doctrine that Jesus was our substitute, that we should have died, but he died in our place so that we wouldn't have to. The righteous for the unrighteous. He was righteous and yet he suffered. That's what he's saying. In the same way, you will too, even though you're righteous. There will be times when you'll suffer. He uh, died for sins once for all the righteous, for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The Greek means near to God, to bring you right up to God. This is what Jesus accomplished in his death. Praise God. He didn't just deliver you from hell and from eternal punishment, but his death has made the way open for you to come to God, right up to God. That was his purpose of his death, a statement of the purpose of his death. He died that you might be restored to know God, that you might be restored to experienced fellowship with God. Praise God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. He was put to death. He didn't just die of old age. His death was unnatural. He was put to death. He was executed upon the cross. And he was put to death in the body. So did Jesus die physically or spiritually? Physically. What does he say? He put to death in the body. Okay, I mean, what does he need to say to, you know, to tell us that he died physically? You know? How about put to death in the body? Oh, okay. Put to death in the body. God. I'm not sure what else he could have said, you know, to make it clearer than that. His death was only physical. That's what he says. And elsewhere, uh, dozens of times in the New Testament, being put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. It's not that Peter has never heard of the Spirit. If Jesus died in his spirit, he would have said that. He was put to death in the body, but then his body was made alive by the Holy Spirit in the resurrection. Praise God. By the power of the Holy Spirit. That's stated in... Paul's writings, Romans 6, Romans 8. The verb here is passive. It means that Jesus didn't make himself alive. He was made alive by God, by the Holy Spirit outside of himself, made him alive. Notice also that he brought us to God through his death and resurrection. Notice the coupling there. The complete work of salvation was through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now we get into some of the really interesting stuff, the difficult stuff. This is a very difficult verse here about what exactly Peter means. There are many varied views as to the meaning of this verse. I want to give you my suggestion, and this is my suggestion after almost 20 years of meditation and thinking about this verse and others. Through whom obviously refers to the Holy Spirit, okay? He was made alive by the Holy Spirit, so that's through whom? Through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, he also went, so also, as well as being resurrected by the Spirit, he also did something else by the Spirit here. Okay, And I believe that what he refers to here, the spirits in prison are the lost. These are people, these are not angels. We'll see that from the following verse, that these were people who disobeyed. Uh, long ago in the day of Noah. So these were people here, and they're in prison. This is the place of the lost. This is not Abraham's bosom. This is not paradise. This is the place of the lost. See, it's prison. 
This is the place for the disobedient, okay? There's no righteous here. There are no righteous people here, okay? These are all disobedient. All of this we know so far. I've not yet got to my view about what happened. This is what it says. These are disobedient. So this does not refer to some taking away of the righteous up to heaven or something. Obviously, it does not refer to that because that never happened anyway because the other verses that they use to try to show that are equally misused as this one is if you try to make it mean that. <laughs> um, now, he went and he preached. It doesn't say what the content of his preaching is. It doesn't say what the intention of his preaching is. It doesn't say what the effect of his preaching was. Okay? It says it was he preached. He preached to the spirits in prison. What I think he means, and this is my opinion, is that between his death and his resurrection, at some point there, Jesus went in the Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he went to the place of the lost. Why not? He's God, okay? He went there, not to suffer at all, but he went there, I believe, to proclaim his victory over sin. And we'll see why I think that. I'll show you why I think that. But I believe that that's what it means, that he was proclaiming his victory over death and sin there, that he did it before these people in the regions of the lost. He was not giving them a second chance. There's no sense here that he's preaching the gospel so they could get saved. There's no idea here of there being a second chance after death for these people or anybody else. It simply says that at some point, and I think quite likely between his death and his resurrection, Jesus went in the Spirit and he preached something, he proclaimed something to the spirits of the lost in prison. And I think he simply stated, he declared the reality of his triumph over sin. Now let's read on. Now the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago. So this verse describes those who were in prison. Who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. So these were the spirits of the people who had disobeyed a long time ago in the time of Noah. Now, obviously, there would have been other people in prison, right? There would have been other spirits in the place of the lost. But Peter only mentions those who were in the time of Noah. And I think the reason why Peter only speaks of them, he's choosing them as representatives because he's making a point here. He's got a theme here. And his theme is that... The righteous, even though they suffer persecution and ridicule now, nevertheless, they will be vindicated later. Okay, they will experience glory and blessing later, right? Is that his theme? Are you with me? Okay, now watch this. See, Noah was persecuted in his day, right? By these people who were lost, who died, went to hell. But then at a time down the line, Jesus actually proclaims victory and vindicates he vindicates righteous Noah. You see, there's a sense of a future vindication of Noah's righteousness there. And I think quite possibly that's Peter's purpose here. You do have permission to disagree with me, and it will not mean the loss of your salvation. <laughs> These people mocked Noah, you know, while he was building the ark. But nevertheless, in the end... Noah was vindicated, wasn't he, you see? And Peter's whole point is that you need to endure your suffering, your slandering, your persecution now because you'll be vindicated. You'll experience glory then. Who disobeyed long ago. See, again, this does not refer that old, it came from Schofield, the idea that when Jesus 
oh, when I forget, so long since I've thought about this, that uh, when, was it when he was resurrected that he, that he took them out of Abraham's bosom and Abraham's bosom moved and so forth and went to heaven? You heard that, that idea? Uh, it's totally unscriptural. Uh, it came from Schofield. And this verse, as well as the other one in Ephesians, which I don't have time, but if you read that, you'll see that he's not saying that at all. At all. At all. At all. Not even a little. <laughs> you see, it's the lost here. It's not the righteous, you see. And in Ephesians 4, it's the captives. He's talking about captives. He's talking about his enemies, not the righteous, not those who are blessed. But anyway, the saved always went to be with God. In the Old Testament, when people died, those who were righteous, they went to be with the Lord. Psalm 73 says that, that you'll... Guide me by your hand continually, and uh, what is it when I... Someone help me. And, and afterward, thou shalt receive me to glory. Okay, Psalm 70, uh, 73, it's about verse 19, 20, somewhere around there. The righteous, that he says, I'm going to live with you continually, Lord, and afterward you'll receive me to glory. You see, the, they went to be with God. Abraham's bosom was never moved, okay? That's just a silly error, like many errors, you know, kind of silly, you know, but... Nevertheless, popular. I mean, all over the world, this sort of stuff ends up, and everybody believes it. Just becomes a tradition, and but it's not true. So, these were the lost. They disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently see, for 120 years. You know, God said He's going to destroy all flesh, but yet He waited. He still gave them 120 years. He was waiting patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, in the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved. Through water. There are only eight people were saved out of the entire world. Remember that Jesus said that the gate that leads to life is narrow and there are few that find it. Wow. In the day of Noah, eight people were saved out of the entire world. Doesn't that give you the fear of God? It's not just being a good old boy or showing up to church once in a while. or That don't cut it. And thinking somehow God will, even though he's pronounced judgment upon the lost, well, he'll just maybe think better at the last minute. And he'll sort of let us off, even though we really haven't served him. We really haven't you know, given him our lives. We've played around with religion. We've played around with church and Christianity. But he'll let us in because, you know, we're, we're good old boy, good old girl. That's not how it works. God's judgment fell upon the world in the time of Noah and only Eight, everybody else perished in the flood and eternally. Eight people were saved. Wow. Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, they were saved through water. Peter says they were saved actually through the water. He doesn't say they were saved through the ark, but they were saved through the water. The water lifted the ark up. And so in that sense, the water saved them. The reason that he says that is because it's a very complex passage. He's about to move into water baptism, okay? So he relates the water here to their salvation. So I think that Peter's overall meaning is this, that Peter is presenting the Lord Jesus Christ as an example of suffering for doing good because he's trying to show us that even though Jesus died, he was brought to life, just as you will be. See, even though he suffered, yet he was then resurrected and glorified, just as you will be, even though you're suffering now. See, so endure your sufferings, be encouraged, because in the end you will experience life and glory, and that Jesus proclaimed his triumph to those who had mocked righteous Noah. 
and then was seated in glory at God's right hand. So in the same way, you can endure your persecution courageously now, knowing that you will be vindicated, just as the Lord Jesus Christ was when he was raised from the dead and seated at the Father's right hand. I believe that that's the sense of, even though there's persecution here, yet there will be vindication. Praise God. And it's not that we're looking for vindication in the eyes of men, but nevertheless, we sure are looking for the glory, aren't we? God is looking for the glory of God. To see his glory, to be one with his glory for eternity in our great, incredible inheritance. We'll continue with verse 21 next week and then go into chapter 4. Praise God. Any questions? The question is, in light of all I said about gentleness and humility and respect and so forth, as our posture to take in the context of evangelism, what do you do with John the Baptist speaking to Herod and rebuking him? And the answer is that John was really not trying to convert Herod, uh, although I'm sure he would have been open to that if that happened, but he was standing as a prophet declaring righteousness. And so, on the one hand, we have a prophet of God that has been sent to prepare the way of the Messiah and to rebuke the sin and the hypocrisy of the religious establishment and to bring in this radical movement of repentance on the one hand versus Peter's context, which is our normal lives. Could there be a time when God would have us stand up and declare something? Yes, of course. Peter's not suggesting that that could never happen and neither am I. But I believe our general posture in the world, in the context of trying to win those that we are rubbing shoulders with, whether they're our husbands or our wives or our masters or people that are coming against us in a slanderous context, our general posture should be one of gentleness and meekness and respect and convicting them by the character of our lives. But could there be a time when it would be appropriate to stand up and thunder? Absolutely. And that is what John's specific calling in ministry would be. And certainly I'm sure that there are those that God has called today to have a similar calling, you know, in whatever context and for whatever purpose. At the same time, I've seen some who thought that was what their calling was, and they would have been considerably better off if they had modeled themselves after Peter's teaching here rather than after John the Baptist's image. Just because John did it doesn't mean that that's our norm. Peter here is teaching us. He's teaching the norm. You know, that's Peter's purpose. He's actually teaching us in the church of Jesus Christ what should be our normal approach. Does that answer your question, bro? Very good point. And let me add that we're talking here about attitude of life. It's not saying that you won't speak the truth. He's not promoting some sort of seeker-friendly thing here, okay? And neither am I, where you sort of wishy-washy everything down. But as you speak the truth, the clean, clear, absolute truth, do it with gentleness and meekness, you see? So then there'll be conviction and power with our words. See, the forcefulness of our personality is not going to convince them anyway. The loudness of our voice or whatever is not going to convince them. They need the Holy Spirit. And Peter is saying that if your life will be a godly representative of the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, as you, without compromise, speak the Word of God. We're not saying you back down on the Word and try to be nice. We're not saying that. We're saying declare the absolute truth of the Word of God, but that your character in doing that 
will be gentle and meek and respectful. Does that make sense? Thank you. Yeah. Oh, me too. Hey, I, I've not done a thing to prepare to Y2K, and, it's, it's, and I'm not about to. That's just that's my position on that, if you were interested. <laughs> Praise God. And that's okay if you have, that's fine. You know, it's, we're not going to kick you out of the church or anything. <laughs> Maybe we'll be coming over to your place on January the 1st to, you know, get warm. I don't know. So, so better, not, better not be too snarpy. Huh? <laughs> Oh dear. If that was the end time judgment of God, you know, upon the earth, it would be the most anticipated judgment of God in the history of humanity. And that's not how they happen, guys. It just ain't how they happen. He's not returning on January the 1st. He's just not. I don't know when he's coming. He may come today, but I'll tell you when he's not coming, and that's January the 1st. <laughs> I can tell you that for sure. There are too many people saying he is, you know. So we know that that's not going to be the way. You know, it's an advice for you. <laughs> Any other uh, serious questions? <laughs> Great. Praise God. Okay. Well... God bless you. Uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you Sunday. We're so glad you joined us for In the Word with Malcolm Weber, a weekly podcast featuring selected teachings from Dr. Weber's over 40 years of ministry. Find more teachings along with books, courses, tools, and other resources from Dr. Weber at www.leadersource.org. Tune in next week for 1 Peter 3, 21 through 4, 11.